Amen. All right, well, we're there in Luke chapter number 5. And of course, on Sundays, we've been going through this journey with Jesus, and uh, we are going to continue that uh, today. And then, of course, uh, we're going to shift a little bit in the next week or so in regards to our sermon series. Uh, we are next Sunday morning going to be having I Love My Church Sunday. And of course, I'm going to be preaching a special sermon on that day about the house of God. And then we're going to kick off a brand new Sunday morning series uh, after I Love My Church Sunday. We're going to continue journeying with Jesus, but we're going to continue for several weeks on Sunday nights only. And as we do a topical series in the morning, just to kind of uh, freshen things up a little bit, give you a little break from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and uh, it doesn't really matter where you open up the Word. If you open up the Word of God and preach it, it's going to be helpful uh, to you. Uh, but tonight, we're going to continue just right where we left off there in Luke chapter 5. If you remember, just to give you a little bit of context, Jesus has called Matthew the publican into the ministry. Matthew the publican got a desire to reach his friends and family, and he held a feast for Jesus with all of his friends, and he invited him, uh, invited uh, Jesus to that feast. And then, of course, as a result, uh, there was some criticism uh, to Jesus for being there uh, with them. And just, just to give you a little bit of context, just to refresh your, your mind there, if you look at uh, Luke chapter uh, 5 and uh, verse number 29, the Bible says, And Levi made him a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are holy, not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in verse number 3, we made it there, uh, 33, we made it there to verse 32 this morning. In verse 33, we find another question, another criticism of Jesus uh, uh, by the disciples. And Jesus answers back, with a parable. And tonight, we're going to look at a couple of lessons. We're going to look at three parables and two lessons. Uh, three parables that Jesus gives and two lessons that we can learn from them. And tonight's going to be very much of a Bible study. Uh, we're going to just kind of look at these scriptures and, and study them out. And I'm going to give you some explanations and applications. And I'll definitely end with some practical applications at the end, and there might be some practical applications as we go along, but uh, I want you to kind of be ready to take some notes, and we're going to look at these things. We're going to look at a lesson on fasting first, and then we're going to look at a lesson on replacement theology, and uh, hopefully that'll make sense to you as we go along. In verse number 33, the Bible says this, and they said unto him, why do do the disciples of John fast off often uh, and make prayers, and likewise the disciples of the Pharisees but thine eat and drink. And remember the setting. They are in Matthew's house. They're having a great feast. They're having a big party. They're uh, eating and enjoying the, uh, uh, the fellowship there that they have together. And the Pharisees and the scribes are trying to throw a wet blanket on this whole thing. They first ask Jesus about why he's even hanging out with these people. And then when Jesus responds and says, look, they that are holy, not a physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they come up with another problem. They said, okay, well, you know, while they're having this party, while they're having this feast, they say, well, you know, we've noticed that the the disciples of John fast often. And they bring up this uh, subject of fasting. And fasting, of course, is when you go for a period of time uh, without eating. And uh, fasting is spoken about in the Bible. And uh, fasting is something that can be done spiritually, can be done medically. But I I want you to understand that uh, spiritual fasting is not the same as secular or medical fasting. You know, obviously anybody can, anytime you go through a time, uh, a period of time without eating, you are in a fast. In fact, every time you go to bed, assuming you don't get up in the middle of the night and uh, have a three-course meal as your uh, midnight snack or something like that, every time you go to bed, you go six or seven or eight hours without eating. And then when you eat in the morning, it's called a break fast for a reason. You're breaking a fast that you have every night. And of course, we call that breakfast. Uh, But fasting can be done for medical reasons, for weight loss reasons. And there's a lot of uh, uh, good health reasons to do fasting and and all of those things. But spiritually, uh, biblical fasts are different. Now, they, they still give you the same 
uh, health benefits, but they're not done for a physical reason. They're done for a spiritual reason. And here, the uh, uh, Sadducees, or excuse me, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're asking the question. They're saying, we've noticed that the disciples of John, they fast often. They fast a lot. They fast on a regular pray, uh, 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 regular basis and make prayers. They said, and likewise, the disciples of the Pharisees, he said, but thine eat and drink. And the question that they're asking is, why don't you fast like we fast? Why don't you fast in the same uh, 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 amount of time or the same regularity that we fast? And there's a couple of things that I want you to understand in regards to fasting, and I want you to, 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 to get this. And the first is this. Biblically, we are not required to fast, but we are expected to fast. And if you're taking notes tonight, I'd encourage you to maybe write these things down. We're not required to fast. See, there are some things in the Bible that we are commanded to do. You are commanded to read your Bible. You are commanded to pray. You are commanded to uh, uh, go soul winning. You're commanded to do certain things. And in fact, oftentimes we're told in which regularity to do it. God tells us over and over in the Bible that he wants us to read the Bible every day. He wants us to pray every day. There are certain things that God wants us to do on a regular basis. Several years ago, I preached a sermon called uh, Things That God Tells Us To Do Every Day. And there's about a list of seven different things that we're told we ought to do every day. And though fasting is taught in the Bible, it is not required in the Bible. We are not required to fast, but we are expected at some point in our lives to fast or to be in the need of fasting. So I want you to understand that their question is already in the wrong context because they're saying, hey, we fast often. Why don't you fast like we fast? And uh, they're, they're, they're having this idea that there's some sort of a biblical requirement to fast. But the truth is that there is no biblical requirement to fast. There is an expectation that every believer at some point in their lives should probably fast, but we're never told, hey, you got to fast this often. You've got to do it uh, this way. In fact, this is something that the Pharisees would do in order to look down on people. If you remember the famous uh, uh, story of the, uh, the Pharisee, Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee uh, and, and the sinner when they stood at the temple and prayed, the, the Pharisee would look down upon the sinner. And he, one of the things that he boasted himself about was the fact that he fasts twice in a week. And of course, the sinner would not even look up to heaven in, in his humility. But these Pharisees would pride themselves on the fact that they would fast and they would, uh, they would look at Jesus and say, you don't fast as often as uh, we do. Now, Jesus gives an answer. Notice in verse 34. And you need to understand that there is no biblical requirement that says you must fast. And let me kind of explain that uh, 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 for a second, because you might be confused by what I'm saying, and I hope that's not the case. We are not required to fast, but we are expected to fast. You say, what does that mean? What that means is that God does expect, the Bible does have this expectation that every believer should come to a place where they practice fasting at some point in their lives, but we're not required to fast where you're told, hey, once a year you got to fast or once a month or once a week or something like that. And the reason for it is because of the physical, uh, the, the, the physical strain that fasting has on your body. I believe for that reason, there's no requirement to fast. You say, why is that? Because some people are not able to fast physically. And, and, uh, and I'm not talking about, you know, you're not able to fast because uh, you just like food or something, you know. Uh, I'm talking about you're, you're medically. It would not be safe for you to fast. So that's why God does not put a requirement. You know, for example, uh, we don't ever recommend that uh, a lady who's expecting, who's pregnant to fast. Because she's not only eating for herself, she's eating for the child that, she's, uh, that she has in her womb. And then, of course, once that uh, a lady gives birth, and if she's a nursing mother, and if she's nursing a child, she should not fast. Uh, because again, her body, she needs to be able to eat uh, to provide nutrients not only for herself, but for her child. So that, that's one example of, of a, a situation where you might find a godly uh, lady who maybe she'd like to fast, but she's not, she's physically just unable to fast uh, because she's pregnant for nine months, and then she's uh, nursing a child for nine months or a year or whatever. 
And during that time, uh, she's unable to fast. And then, of course, if you actually follow the biblical principle of being fruitful and multiplying, and you actually follow the biblical principle, and I'm about to get on a rabbit trail that I should not be getting on, but I'm already halfway there. You follow the biblical principle of not, you know, using birth control and, uh, and, and all the side effects that, that has to do with that. Uh, then you might end up, you know, finding that uh, you get pregnant, you have a baby, you nurse for a year, and then you're pregnant again. And you have a baby, you nurse for a year, and then you're pregnant again. You know, there are some women that have literally been pregnant or nursing for like eight years of their life. And where it's not medically, you know, uh, a, a good idea to fast. And of course, there's other reasons. If, if, you, if you've got some sort of an ailment or if you've got uh, some sort of a sickness or you've got physical reasons. So I believe for that reason, God does not say like, hey, you've got to fast because there may be... You know, I could get up here and say, hey, all of you need to fast and make you feel bad. But there actually may be some physical, legitimate medical reasons why you cannot fast. So there is no requirement to fast, but you are expected uh, to fast. And if that whole birth control thing threw you off, we've got a video on YouTube. I'm not going to take the time to preach it, but you can watch the video and we'll explain to you from the Bible what the Bible teaches about that. So there's no biblical requirement that says you must fast. And what Jesus taught is that we need to be intelligent in regards to understanding the seasons of life where you should fast and when you should not fast. Notice, they ask the question in verse 33, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise disciples of Pharisees, but thine eat and drink? And in verse 34, Jesus answers. The Bible says, and he said unto them, he says, can ye make, notice, He's talking about the fact that fasting is not something that should be forced upon people. He says, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? And Jesus begins to give this parable, and he is giving this illustration of a wedding or a wedding reception. And he's saying, look, if you have the children of the bride chamber, you've got, you know, we just had a wedding uh, yesterday. You've got a bride and a groom. You've got bridesmaids and groomsmen. And he says, can you make the children of the bride chamber fast? He says, while the bridegroom is with them. And, and what Jesus is teaching, he's saying, look, we, if, you were, if you were getting married and you planned this whole wedding ceremony, you had this whole party laid, uh, laid out, you had this whole reception, you invited certain individuals to be your groomsmen and your bridesmaids and to be your witnesses and to be there at the wedding. He says, look, that's not, you shouldn't just decide a day before the wedding, I'm about to go on a week-long fast. You know, you just plan, it's not the time to fast. Because you're having a wedding. Uh, you're having this celebration. And Jesus is saying, look, we are having a celebration right now. Jesus says, I'm with my disciples. We are uh, 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 reaching the world. We're doing work. He says, can ye make the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? Notice verse 35. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. And what Jesus is teaching, he's saying, look, you need to understand that there are times to fast and there are times to not fast. There are times when it makes sense to fast, and there are times when it makes sense not to fast. You know, there are times, uh, sometimes we go, and of course, because of COVID, we haven't been able to do this in a while, but there's been times when we've done mission trips. We'll go spend a week in the Philippines, spending four, five, six, seven hours a day out in the heat, giving the gospel, getting people saved. Look, that's a great spiritual time, but that's not the time to fast. You understand that? You know, that's the time to, to eat because you got you, you to gotta, you gotta strengthen your body to be able to do the work of the ministry. Jesus is doing the work of the ministry. What he's saying is, look, there are times when you should fast. There are times when you should not fast. And he's looking at these Pharisees and saying, you should not look down on people because you're doing something that they're not. And by the way, just in, in general, don't ever get this Pharisaical, holier-than-thou attitude that because you're doing something uh, spiritual that someone else is not doing, you look down on them like they're some sort of second-class citizen. Remember that you have not always been where you are. 
And sometimes people need to grow. They need time to grow. They need time to learn. And you might be somewhere where you can uh, physically do something like fasting. Well, hey, praise the Lord for it. But maybe somebody else is not in that season of life. So you shouldn't look down on them. So here Jesus is teaching, look, there will be seasons of life where you should fast, where you can fast. But I want you to understand, fasting is an expectation. And if you've never fasted in your life, I would encourage you to, it, maybe you're not there where you can do it, but to think and plan for some time, maybe in the next several weeks, maybe in the next several years. I don't know when you might be able to take aside some time and fast. Go to Matthew chapter 6 if you would. Matthew chapter 6, go, go backwards. From Luke, Luke, Mark, Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. And I preach entire sermons on fasting, and, and, and we've got tons of stuff on our website and, and YouTube or whatever. So if you're interested in the subject, you can learn about it. But, you know, just remember that the Bible teaches that when you fast, you're not supposed to make a show out of it. You're not supposed to go around telling people that you're fasting, and it's not something that we're supposed to, it's something that we're supposed to do, the Bible says, not to be seen of men. Matthew 6 and verse 16, I just want you to see this wording. The Bible says, moreover, notice Jesus here teaching on the subject of fasting. He says, when ye fast. He doesn't say if you fast. He says, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, notice, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. And I just want to point out to you that Jesus says, when you fast, he says, when thou fastest. He doesn't say, if you fast, he says, when you fast. So there is an expectation that we should all, when we're able to, when you're mature enough, when you're physically able to, there is an expectation that there might come a time in our lives when we should fast, but it's not required and you're not told you've got to fast today because you may not be able to fast today. You may not be able to fast this week. You may not be able to fast this year. So we see this lesson on fasting. It's What is it? That we are not required to fast, but we are expected to fast. Go back to Luke chapter 5. You're not expected to fast on anybody else's schedule, but you should consider fasting at some point in your life. And then Jesus kind of teaches us about that. So we're not required to fast, but we are expected to fast. Here's a second thought in regards to fasting. You may find that you choose to fast, or you say, I've never fasted before, I've never felt the need to fast. Well, here's the thing about fasting, is that you may be prompted by the Holy Spirit to fast, or you might find that you choose to fast during times of suffering and special need. See, in Luke chapter 5, and verse 35, Jesus says, look, we're having a party. We're at a wedding. He says, the bridegroom, referring to himself, Jesus, he said, I'm here with my, 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 my bride chamber with the people I've invited to the wedding. He said, this is not a time to fast. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. He said, the days coming, Jesus is alluding to the fact that one day he will be killed and then he will resurrect. And after 40 days upon this earth, he will ascend. And he will no longer be physically with his uh, uh, disciples. And he says, the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. And then, they, uh, and then shall they fast in those days. What is he referring to? He's referring to the fact that there are so times and seasons in our lives when we are suffering and when we are in special need. And those are usually the times that we should uh, set aside that, uh, that we should fast. Now look, if you're physically able to, I don't think there's anything wrong with fasting on a regular basis. Amen. But there should be a times in your life when you are kind of prompted to fast. And what are those times? During times of suffering and during times of special need. See, when Jesus is taken away from them, the disciples will be suffering and they will be in special need. They will be in need of uh, uh, Jesus. So let me just kind of show this to you and explain this to you. Go to uh, 2 Samuel, if you would, in the Old Testament. If you find the one and two books, they're all clustered together. The first and second books, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. First, uh, 2 Samuel chapter number 1. Let me, let me show you this idea of times when you should maybe consider to fast. Now again, you can fast any time. So you don't have to fast only during times of suffering and times of special need. You can fast whenever you'd like. 
and, and you're encouraged to fast if you're physically able to. But times when you should consider fasting, when you should maybe be prompted to fast, would be times of suffering. Notice in the Bible we find that when people were mourning, they would often fast. Let me give you a couple of examples. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says this, Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them. This is right after David was told that Saul, Jonathan, had been killed, King Saul, and David's uh, good friend, probably best friend, Jonathan, had been killed in battle, and that the children of Israel have lost the battle against their enemies. The Bible says, Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept, notice, and fasted until even. And that would be until evening or until sundown for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. So notice, we see that David here decides to fast during a time of mourning at the time of the death of his king Saul and of his best friend Jonathan and the children of Israel have lost the battle. Here we see him fasting. Go to 2 Samuel chapter number 3. Let me give you another example. 2 Samuel chapter number 3 and verse 33. 2 Samuel 3.33, the Bible says this, And the king, this is referring to David, lamented over Abner. This is after he finds out uh, about the death of Abner, who was the captain of the host for Saul. Abner has been killed and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth, thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again for him, uh, over him. Notice verse 35. And when all the people came to curse David, excuse me, to curse David, good night, to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, uh, David swears, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, till the sun be down. So notice again, uh, when he finds out about Abner's death, he says, I'm going to fast until evening. So just a couple of examples that sometimes when you're going through a time of suffering, when you're mourning, when something difficult uh, is, ha- is happening in your life, that's a time when you may want to consider fasting. And here specifically, we've got examples of people fasting while they're mourning the death of loved ones. And isn't it true if you've ever suffered the death of someone close to you or near you, someone you love during that time of mourning, honestly, you usually don't want to eat anyway. So we see how this would be a natural time, a time of suffering to uh, want to fast or to be prompted to fast. Go, Go to the book of Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Let me give you another example. And again, I, I want to be clear about this thing about fasting, because I, I, so I feel like every time I preach on fasting, I, I get more questions uh, uh, afterwards, and I'm, all, and I'm okay with that. I, I want you to ask questions if you have questions. I just feel like uh, there's, it's just such a broad subject that it's hard to just cover all, everything you can about fasting in, 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 in one sermon, and I'm not even going to try to do that because I've got other stuff to cover tonight. The point that I'm making is this. You can fast any time, but there may be natural seasons in your life when it might be good to go into a time of fasting, those would be times of suffering, of persecution, of heartache. Those would be times that you might be prompted by the Holy Spirit to fast. Also, times of special need. Now, in Matthew 17, we're not going to read the story, but we have the story of Jesus going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember, he brought Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was uh, transfigured before them. And if you remember, two Old Testament characters appeared with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. Now, that's that's important for a reason. I'm going to make the connection here in a minute. After they got done up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they come down from the mountain. And when they come down on the mountain, they are confronted with a special need. Notice there, Matthew 17, verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, this is Jesus coming off off the Mount of Transfiguration. They meet up with the group. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. This man 
comes to Jesus with a broken heart. He's got a son who's possessed of a devil, and he's a lunatic. He's sore vexed. He's hurting himself, falling into the fire, falling into the water. And this man, he came to find Jesus, but Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And he goes to the disciples of Jesus. Now, keep in mind, at this point, the apostles have already been commissioned and empowered. They've already gone out and preached the word. They've already themselves cast out devils. They've already themselves performed some of these marvels. So in verse 16, the Bible says, And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. These men had already cast out devils, but for some reason, they could not cast out this devil. There was a special need. I won't take the time to belabor the whole story. I could preach a whole sermon on it, but I want you to skip down to verse 21. I want you to notice what Jesus says to them. Matthew 17, 21 says this, how be it? They're confused. Why could we not cast out this devil? We've cast out other devils. Why could we not cast out this one? Jesus responds, how be it? This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Here Jesus says, look, there are uh, devils that you've cast out. There are devils that you've met in spiritual warfare. There are victories that you've had. But he says, uh, this kind, he says, this kind, this is a special kind. And this goes not out, but by prayer and fasting. There's a quote that says, the higher levels bring greater devils. And in your Christian life, you know, when you first got saved or when our church first started, we met up with some devils and we fought some battles. And over the years, the battles have gotten harder and the battles have gotten more intense and the, the, the fighting has gotten even more severe. And I'm here to tell you, in the Christian life, there will be times when you will be confronted with this kind. This kind of battle, this kind of problem, this kind of issue. You say, I, I've been walking the Christian life, I've been living the Christian life for years. Yeah, but the longer you go, you might be confronted with this kind. And this kind goes not out, but by prayer and fasting. See, sometimes we've got to grow spiritually. We've got to learn to deny our flesh and rely on the Spirit of God. And it might require us. I'm here to tell you that you, you may say, I don't really have a need for fasting. Maybe not yet, but you might find yourself someday in suffering and special need. Confronted by this kind that goes not out by prayer and fasting. Now, there's a misconception when it comes to fasting, and it is this. In fact, there's a misconception when it comes to prayer, and it is this. That we... Twist the arm of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. Prayer is asking and receiving. But there's this misunderstanding among Christians that prayer is us going to God and getting God to change his mind. I recently preached a whole series uh, uh, on Sunday mornings uh, not too long ago called The School of Prayer. And we went through and, and, and learned... All, we looked at all the passages where Jesus taught on the subject of prayer. And one of the things that I emphasize over and over, that prayer is not us trying to get God on our, uh, on, on our page or on our plan. Prayer is us getting on His page. Amen. We don't go to God in praying, you know, in prayer and say, my will be done. We say, thy will be done. Amen. Not my will, but thine be done. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven. See, prayer is meant to align us to God, not to align God to us. And fasting is just taking prayer one step further. The purpose of fasting is not to try to uh, uh, get God to do what we want him to do. A misconception people have is that if I really want something, I can fast and then God will give it to me. No, no, no. You don't understand fasting. Fasting is not getting God to align with you. Fasting is getting you to align yourself with God. Amen. Again, I don't have time to go into the whole thing about fasting. I've preached sermons on it. But the whole purpose of fasting is to deny your flesh. Amen. Your flesh wants to eat. It has a physical need to eat. And when you learn to deny your flesh and say no to the belly, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit can flow within you. And you can align yourself to God, get closer to God. This is what Jesus taught, Matthew 17. Look at verse 17. Then Jesus answered and said, because remember, he just came down. They weren't able to cast out the devil. Jesus cast out the devil successfully. And now he's going to rebuke his disciples. He says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. <clears throat> now remember, in Luke, he said, Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom. 
with the bride chamber. Can you make the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? He says, but the days are coming when the bridegroom shall be taken away, then shall they fast. Remember he said that in Luke chapter 5? Here in Matthew 17, he says, the Bible says, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, because Jesus is now very close to leaving them. He says, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was uh, cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could, we, why could not we cast him out? Notice what he says, verse 20. And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, remove hence uh, to yonder place, and it shall be removed, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Jesus says, look, there are some problems, there are some issues that are going to require you to grow and stretch yourself. He says, you couldn't do it because of your unbelief. You couldn't do it because you didn't have enough faith. These people were saved. They had enough faith to get saved. But they needed to grow their faith. And a way to do that is to fast. So he says, this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. So we see this lesson on fasting. Go back to Luke chapter 5 if you would. What is it? It is that we are not required to fast, but we are expected to fast. There's no biblical requirement that says you must fast, but there is a biblical expectation that there will be seasons in your life that you probably should fast. And you can fast whenever you'd like, and I think it's a good idea to fast if you're able to. But especially when you find yourself in times of suffering and in times of special need, when you are confronted with the this kind, those are definitely times that we should give ourselves, if you're able to, to prayer and fasting, to grow our faith that we might overcome those obstacles. So we see a lesson on fasting. Now let me shift gears if you would. I can look down at Luke chapter 5 and verse 36. And let me give you a lesson on replacement theology. Now it might seem odd, but it's Jesus who's teaching here and he's giving a series of parables. The first parable has to do with the bridegroom and the bride chamber and fasting. He gives the parable because they are criticizing him. And saying, why don't you fast as often as we fast? And he explains that there are times to fast and times to not fast. Now Jesus is going to shift gears. He's going to give us two more parables. And these two parables are a pair of parables, meaning they're a parallel parables. They're different parables, but they're teaching the same thing. They're pretty much the same concept. And Jesus is giving this parable or these two parables as a criticism of them. They have been criticizing him. Now he's going to criticize them. Notice verse 36. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old. If otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. He says in verse 37, And no man putteth new wine into old bottles. Else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But new wine must be put into new bottles, and both are preserved. Jesus gives these two parables. One is of putting a new cloth on an old garment, and one is of putting new wine in old bottles. Now what I'd like to do is give you first an explanation of these parables. Explain to you what it is that Jesus is teaching in these parables, and then I want to give you an application for these parables. I want to give you the main application and then some secondary applications that we could learn. So let's begin with the explanation. What is the explanation of putting a piece of new wine in into an old bottle or a new cloth onto an old garment? What is it that Jesus is teaching? Well, notice there again in verse 36, and he spake a parable, and he spake also a parable unto them, no man putteth a piece of new garment upon an old, and he's referring to an old garment. Why? Why don't you put a piece of new garment in a different gospel, we're told, a new cloth upon an old garment? He says, if otherwise, then both the new maketh a rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. Now, I'd like to just kind of read to you an explanation for this, and I actually had my wife help me with this because she uh, sews and does a lot of things like that, and uh, she's obviously... Uh, 
more knowledgeable about those skills than I am. But I'll read this explanation for you in regards to new cloth and old garments. Most of the time, you should pre-wash your fabric. This is sometimes called pre-shrink. The three main reasons to pre-wash your fabric are to, or to pre-shrink them is to prevent colors from bleeding and eliminate uh, chemicals. It is also that they might shrink. It is very important to pre-wash fabric because it makes sure your projects stay true to size. This is especially important for garments when shrinkage could make a big difference in the final fit. While most fabric does not shrink more than 10%, it can make a big difference. This is especially important if you are working on garments. The idea is that you have a piece of clothing, you have a garment, something you put on. And we don't see this a lot anymore, but this used to be a very common thing back in the old days. You know, today people, uh, you, people have so much clothes, you know, you just throw away clothes and you buy new clothes and, you know, some of you have issues like that. You've got habits that you need to break and, uh, and whatever. We're just constantly buying stuff and, and that's the, the world we live in. But there used to be a time in this country and especially in the ancient world where you didn't just buy clothes and get rid of clothes. I mean, you often owned, you know, uh, 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 an outfit to work in and an outfit to worship in and that was pretty much it. You know, you had two outfits and when you wore clothes, obviously it would wear and you might tear the clothes. And there was a time when if you got a tear in your pants, usually maybe in the knee area or in, your, in a coat or in a shirt, maybe in the elbow area, you didn't just throw that away. No, you took a patch and you'd patch that garment, you know, and, and you, would, you would patch it and you continue to use it. But the idea is this, that you would not take a brand new piece of cloth Go down to the store, buy a brand new piece of cloth, cut out a patch, and then sew it onto an existing garment. You would not do that. Why? Because as soon as that shirt or that pair of pants got washed, that new cloth is going to shrink. And it's going to tear the rent and make it worse. So you would not take a brand new piece of cloth to uh, patch up an old garment, you would take a piece that has already been washed or a piece that has already been used. This is what Jesus is referring to. Look at verse 36. And he spake also a parable unto them. No man putteth. I think it's interesting that Jesus is just the manliest man in the Bible and yet he has all this knowledge about sewing. He says, No man putteth a piece of a new garment upon an old if otherwise, notice, then both the new maketh a rent. He says, if you put the new with the old, the new's going to get torn up too. It's going to rent, and the piece that was taken out of the new agreeeth not with the old. He says, you don't put a new cloth on an old garment because when you wash it, it'll shrink and it'll make it worse. It will not agree with the old. It will make a rent. This is the explanation of putting a new garment upon an old cloth, a new cloth upon an old garment. Then Jesus gives another, another parable. Notice verse 37. It's a different parable, but it has the same application, same idea. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. But the new wine must be put into new bottles. And both are preserved. He said, what is this about? Well, let me just read this for you. The bottles of the ancient Eastern world were made of leather skin, generally those of goats. As new wine or grape juice gets older, it begins to naturally ferment. And all natural juice is going to ferment to some extent. As the new wine would uh, uh, go through that process, it would begin to expand and contract. New, fresh leather bottles would expand and contract with the new wine. However, if you put new wine into old leather bottles, bottles that have already dried and hardened, then the old leather would not expand and contrast with the new wine. The old leather would crack and burst. 
This is what Jesus is referring to. He says, no man put his new wine into old bottles, else the new wine will burst the bottles and be spilled, and the bottles shall perish. He says, but new wine must be put onto new bottles, and both are preserved. So I want you to understand the explanation. What's the explanation? What does Jesus say? He's saying, you don't take a new cloth and put on an old garment. He said, if you're going to, if you're going to, have a new cloth, you want to use that new cloth for a new garment. If you're going to try to uh, sew up an old garment, he says you want to take an old cloth because the two are not going to agree. He says you don't put new wine in old bottles. He said new wine requires new bottles that are fresh and can expand and contrast with the new wine because the new wine, all it's going to do, it's going to crack and burst the old bottles. That's the explanation. I hope that makes sense. Here's the application. Go to Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews chapter number 8. You're there in the book of Revelation. You go backwards. You have Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John, 2nd, and 1st Peter, James, Hebrews. You say, what is Jesus talking about? Here's what he's talking about when he's talking about new cloth and old garments and new wine and old bottles. The Pharisees and the scribes are attacking Jesus. They're criticizing him. They're picking him apart. Why are you hanging out with publicans and sinners? Why do you feast and not fast like we do? Why do you do this and why do you do that? And as we continue through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to find that these guys are everywhere. I mean, in in a future uh, chapter here very soon, we're going to see Jesus with the disciples out in the middle of a field. I mean, in the middle of a field, grabbing corn, and the Pharisees and the scribes just kind of pop up. And it's like, where did you come from? It's like, are you following us? And they're just, they're just bent on this idea of trying to catch Jesus, trying to find him doing something wrong, trying to accuse him of something he's doing wrong. And Jesus teaches these two parables, the one of the uh, new cloth and old garments and new wine and old bottles, because he's making a point. And what Jesus is trying to explain to the Pharisees is that Jesus is here on the earth doing a new thing. He's bringing a new doctrine. He's bringing a new testament. He's bringing a new covenant. And he's explaining to the Pharisees that this new covenant, this new testament, this new doctrine, this new uh, 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 local New Testament church that he's starting, he said, I'm not here, Jesus would say, to bring my new doctrine and put it into your old bottles. He said, I'm not the new cloth that's going to patch up your old covenant. He says, I'm here to do a new thing. See, the application of the new garment upon the old and the new wine upon the old uh, and the old bottles is that Jesus says, I'm here not to reform what you had before. I'm here to do a brand new thing. The new covenant was not meant to be put into the old covenant because you put new wine into new bottles. The new covenant was its own thing. And I want you to notice Hebrews chapter 8. Now, I understand that what I'm teaching you tonight is often referred to as replacement theology. And people will use that against us, and they'll use that as some sort of slang, like, oh, you believe in replacement theology. Let me tell you something. When people give us these slangs and they try to, you know, give us, I, I just embrace them. You was one saved, always saved. Oh, yeah, I'm one saved, always saved. You believe in replacement theology? If that's what you want to call it, sure. You say, why, why do you believe that? Well, because uh, I've, I've got this kind of habit I've developed over the years where I just believe whatever the Bible says. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, look at verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. And look, we could spend all night on this. I'm not going to. But let me just show you some clear scripture. Hebrews 8 and verse 6. But now have he, the he there is referring to Jesus, obtained, the book of Hebrews is written to You don't have to have a Bible college degree to know this. It's written to the Hebrews. All right? It's written to people that were descendants of Abraham. You would call them Jews or the nation of Israel or whatever. And the entire book of Hebrews, if you study it from chapter 1 all the way through, it's all about comparing Jesus to the Old Testament and how Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Tabernacle. Here we're told, Hebrews 8 and verse 6, but now have he, referring to Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry. 
Notice, not a similar ministry, not an equal ministry. No, the ministry that Jesus obtained was a more excellent ministry. Notice, by how much also he is the mediator of a, notice these words, better covenant. Now today people will say, oh no, no, yeah, we have a New Testament, but God is, you know, the Old Testament is just as good. The Old Covenant is just as good. And please understand this. When I'm saying the Old Testament, I'm not referring to the portion of Scripture that you call the Old Testament. The Old Testament, referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, the books, uh, the Scripture, yes, that's the Word of God. When we're talking about a testament, we're talking about the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It's called the Old Testament for that reason. Do you understand that? I'm not referring to Scripture. I'm referring to the covenant that God made, the agreement that He made. We're told in Hebrews 8, 6, but now hath He obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also He is the mediator, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, a better testament, a better agreement, which was established upon, upon better promises. Notice, for if that first covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai, he says if that first covenant had been faultless, what does that mean? He says if the first covenant had no problems, then should no place have been sought for the second. See, we are New Testament believers. Amen. New covenant believers. We are in a new covenant that the Bible says is a better covenant established upon better promises. And if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Notice verse 8. For finding fault, you say, what was wrong with the old covenant? Well, there's nothing wrong with the old covenant, but he did, the Bible says there in verse 8, for finding fault with them. You say, what was wrong with the Old Covenant? Nothing was wrong with the Old Covenant, but there was something wrong with the people that were supposed to keep the Old Covenant. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, that's the new wine, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. That's the Old Covenant, the old bottles. In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they, remember, the problem with the old covenant was not the covenant, it was the people that were supposed to keep the covenant, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. I'm here to tell you something, that God is done with the nation of Israel. He had a covenant with them in the Old Testament, but he found fault with them. He found fault with their ability to keep the covenant, and he has done away the new covenant. And when Jesus showed up, he said, I'm not here to try to uh, reform the old covenant. He said, you don't put new wine in old bottles. He said, I'm here to bring a new covenant, a new testament. You put new wine into new bottles. He said, I'm here to do something new. I'm here to do something better, established upon better promises. Today, Evangelical Christians, they, they hate this. I mean, they, they oh, I went to Bible college and I, went, and I read this book and I read this commentary. Okay, well, that's nice, but how about you read the Bible? Amen. Hebrews chapter 7, if you would. Today people want to act like, oh, no, no, the Old Testament, and again, I'm not talking about the Scripture, I'm talking about the covenant. The old covenant that God made with Moses, that's still around. And you say, I don't know, I don't know about all this, I've never heard this. Look, I don't have the time to, I just spilled this water. I don't have the time uh, to, to, to preach this whole sermon for you. But let me just help you. Whenever you walk into a church and they've got the American flag and the, and the flag of Israel, whenever you've got guys like John Hagee getting up and saying, we got to pray for Israel, we got to bless Israel, all of that stems from this idea that the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel is still in effect. Whenever you hear a preacher say, the Jews are still God's chosen people, the reason they think that is because they believe that God's old covenant, 
that he made with Moses is still in effect. The problem with that is that the Bible is clear that that covenant has been done away. It's done. And it's not coming back. There's been a change. Hebrews chapter 7. People say, oh no, nothing changed. And here's what they teach. It's called dispensational theology. We're against it. I'm against it. Dispensational theology teaches this, that the New Testament is a parenthetical season, a time in the, in the history of mankind where God got upset with the Jews because they did something, they were naughty. They crucified his son. He got upset with them, so he put them on time out. And, you know, for a little while he's dealing with the New Testament church, but eventually he's going to go back to the Jews. They're going to make a comeback. And the old covenant is going to come back. That's what dispensational theology teaches. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says it's done. The Bible says that God, that Jesus came and brought a more excellent ministry. He's the mediator of a better covenant upon better promises. You try to teach this to people and they're like, I don't believe that. Okay, well, do you believe this? Hebrews 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood. What is the Levitical priesthood a representation of? It's a representation of the Old Covenant. Look at it. Look at what the Bible says. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek? Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. That's the New Covenant. He says, look, if, if, if perfection were by the Levitical, the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek, notice, and not be called after the order of Aaron. Look at verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. I'm here to tell you, God made a change. Oh, no there's, no, there's no change. The Jews are still God's chosen people. No, they're not. Oh, the, the Levitical priesthood of the temple is going to come back. For the Antichrist, it is. But it's not coming back for God. It's not, he's done with it. He's done with the nation of Israel. Now, don't misunderstand me. Go to Matthew chapter 21, if you would. Matthew 21. I'm not talking about individuals. Obviously, a Jew could believe on Christ today and be saved. But he's not going to get saved under that old covenant or somehow uh, claiming that old covenant. Anyone that is saved is going to be saved through Jesus Christ, period. And Jesus said, I came to establish a new covenant. New wine, new bottles. You don't put a new cloth on an old garment. He says, I'm the new cloth and I'm not here to try to fix up the old garment. Matthew 21, look at verse 43. Matthew 21, 43. Notice what the Bible says, Therefore say I unto you, this is Jesus speaking, the kingdom of God, notice this, shall be taken away from you. Who's he speaking to? The Pharisees, the Jews of his day. He says the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. He said, I'm taking the kingdom from you, and I'm giving it to a new nation. I'm giving it to a different nation. I'm giving it to somebody else. And people say, oh, no, well, yeah, but then he's going to give it back to the Jews. No, he's not. That's done. You say, why is that? Here's why. Because in the new covenant, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. See, the new covenant makes us one and makes us uh, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He says not to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He says not and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. Amen. I'm here to tell you, because see, the dispensational crowd will say, the Jews are making a comeback spiritually with God. No, they're not. Jesus said, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, oh yeah, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're going to be there with people from the East and the West, referring to Gentiles. Because look, it's always been about Jesus Christ. 
It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and saying, I'm not here to pour my new wine into your old bottles. Go back to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, look at verse 39. I want you to notice what Jesus says. He, he gives this parable about new cloths and old garments and new wine and old bottles. Luke 5, 39. And we've, we've taught on this and preached on this. If you've got questions, we have a whole documentary on, on YouTube that you could watch called March in Zion where we go through and explain this very thoroughly. Amen. Luke 5, 39. Then Jesus, he makes this little caveat at the end. He, he mentions this, this at, in verse 39. He says, No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new. Jesus is saying, I understand that when you, people don't like change. So when I'm bringing a new thing, I'm doing a new thing, I'm bringing a new covenant. He said, people are going to want to not receive it. No man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth the new, for he saith, I want you to notice, Jesus is not saying that Jesus says this. Jesus is saying that the person, and he's talking about the Pharisees, that has drunk the old wine, referring to the old covenant, when they realize that there's a new wine, that person is going to say the old is better. So Jesus is saying people are going to pretend like the old covenant is better than the new covenant, because no man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new, for he saith the old is better. And people are often confused by this. They say, well, who would say the old is better? Uh, how about the Jews? I mean, all the Jews alive today are the ones that have rejected Christ are saying, no, the old is better. You know, there's a growing movement called the Hebrews Roots Movement. And what, what are they? They're, they're trying to grab onto and take a grasp of that old covenant and they are trying to bring us back to that Old Testament and they are saying the old is better. But here's the main application, dispensational Christianity. I mean, the people who teach that the church age is just a parenthetical time out and that God is going to bring back the Jews, what are they actually saying? Here's what they're saying, the old is better. That God just did away with the old for a short time, but he's going to bring them back. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches that he has taken away the kingdom from them. The Word of God teaches that he has uh, created a new nation of Gentile believers along with Jews and Greeks. and Anyone who believes on Christ can be part of this new kingdom. Jesus said, I'm not here to put new wine in old bottles. That is, in my opinion, the specific application of these parables. But let me just give you, just as we finish tonight, just some additional applications. Because when Jesus gave this parable, you know, it's, it's, a parable is a saying, it's, 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 a, it's a truth, it's an illustration that perceives a truth. And I believe that the primary application that Jesus was saying, he's looking at these Pharisees and saying, I'm not trying to get on your program, you better get on my program. But the thing about these parables is that you could take them and apply them in different ways and, and, and use the same truth and apply it in different situations. Let me just quickly give you a, 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 a few thoughts. How about the new IFB and the old IFB? You know, we're independent federal Baptists, and we've been called by some new independent federal Baptists because we've got some beliefs where we reject the pre-trip rapture, we reject Zionism, we reject all sorts of things that are not biblical. And they say, you guys are the new IFB. So they start calling us the new IFB, we start calling them the old IFB. <laughs> and, and sometimes you're like, why can't you just unite? Why can't you just bring them together? Here's the thing, you, you don't put new wine in old bottles. Amen. It'll rent. If these old IFB churches ever had me preach for them, it would, br it would rent. <laughs> Like the church would split. You know, how about music? The Bible says that God hath put a new song in your mouth. You know what Christians try to do today? They try to take the new song that Jesus gave them at salvation and they try to conform it to the old music of the old world. You know, we don't put new wine in old bottles. We don't put new cloth on old garments. How about this? Your new life in Christ. When you got saved, the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Amen. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. See, some of the reasons that you may be frustrated in your Christian life is because when you got saved, you became a new creature. You were born again. You were quickened. You were made alive. God gave you a new life, but you're trying to live that new life with your old lifestyle. With the old way you used to dress, with the old places you used to go, with the old way you used to talk, with the old way you used to think, I'm here to tell you, you don't put new wine in old bottles. You don't put new cloths on old garments. Hey, you got to get rid of those old bottles and put that new wine in a new bottle. He said, no man, you say, why do people resist? Why do people resist the new life? Because no man also having drunk old wine straightway desireth new. People show up to church like this, they hear these hymns and they're like, I don't. I don't want that. They show up to church like this, they hear preaching like this, like, I don't want that. They show up to church like this, they see the, the biblical doctrine that we see, I don't want that. But let me tell you something, the new is better. Amen. So he teaches us this principle. He said, you don't put new cloths on old garments, it doesn't work. You don't put new wine in old bottles, it doesn't work. He said, you put new wine in new bottles, and both are preserved. Let's bow our heads and our word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these passages of Scripture and the applications. Lord, I realize that teaching some of these doctrines can be unpopular for some people, but they need not be popular for, the pe- for, for people if they just believe the Bible. I pray you'd help us as God's people to always trust the Bible. Help us to build our lives on the Bible, what we believe on the Bible. Look at what the Bible says, and the Bible is so clear about these teachings. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to learn and grow. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.